Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Mackenzie campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. Thanks, Tim, and I'm glad that one of the issues of legacy that uh, I was able to leave is that anybody who leads this church must be called Tim, and uh, so that's uh, a good thing. Thanks, mate. I really appreciate it. We're talking about uh, legacy, and... um, Tim mentioned a little bit of family, so just forgive my indulgence for 60 seconds, but just to tell you a little bit of personal story about that is that my story is that a young boy came to Australia as a migrant from Ireland when he was nine years of age and really came for one main reason, that was because his dad had become a really strong and poor, bad alcoholic in Ireland. We came out to give my dad a fresh start really. And uh, so he was good for a couple of years and then things happened in the third year and my dad went down the same path again and eventually died of cirrhosis of the liver as, a, as an alcoholic when I was 12 years of age. And so I grew up with my single mum through my teenage years. I um, studied at high school, got into high school, did all right, did year 12 twice just for fun and uh, eventually got into university where I met a young lady. And this young lady similarly come from a broken home and her parents divorced and she was in her early teens and so she spent the most of the rest of her teenage years bouncing between mum and dad and in various boarding houses around the place. And we met in first year university. We married very young. I was 20, Chris was 18. We told our kids, don't even think about that. It's much too young, but it worked for us. And, and two years after that, we, in the same week, but five days apart, we came to discover the life-changing, transforming love of Jesus. Five days apart. Two years after we were married, didn't come up in Christian homes at all. And uh, an amazing just journey that's began there. And I'm not going to bore you with the next 17 years, but almost 49 years later, um, this is what's kind of emanated at the beginning of this year at, uh, at my granddaughter, my oldest granddaughter's wedding. And there's seven of us missing in that photo. It's the, uh, I don't think the camera lens was quite wide enough, but, but it's uh, it just, that's who we are. That's our house. And I tell you that not because of any s- sense of self-aggrandizement, but just to say that if God can take a couple of broken people from dysfunctional families and do anything with. He can do it with anybody sitting in his building. He can do it with you. He can do it with me. God can do that. But understand, that's my story. It's not your story. Legacy is not about numbers. It's about impact. It's about impact for the kingdom. And this morning, I want to talk about the impact or the legacy that kingdom legacy that might be in your life or might be able to become part of your life. Things that might happen because of who you are. I want to talk about that legacy this morning. But before I do that, I want to ask you a question. Serious question. How many people here love wrestling? I'm not talking about... uh, Greco-Roman wrestling. I'm not talking about Olympic wrestling. I'm talking about WWE wrestling. Real wrestling. How many people, come on, be honest, you're in church. (laughs) Me and three others. 
I love WWE wrestling. I don't love it for the sport. It's not sport. Please understand that. It's theatre. That's what it is. But WWE wrestling, which runs now, is, you know, it's the Roman Reigns, John Cena, um, Seth Rollins, Undertaker. Obviously, I've been watching too much of it, but, but it's that sort of wrestling. And if you are a little bit older than just now and a little bit younger than me, you'll remember 20, 25 years ago, another iteration of wrestling, which was, you know, the Hulk Hogan's, the Ultimate Warrior, the Randy Macho Man Savage, Jake the Snake Roberts used to come to the ring with a Hessian bag with his pet snake, Damien. I did watch too much of this, and, and uh, <laughs> pet snake Damien, and one of his moves was to just lay the snake across the person he's just beaten. But if you were my age or more, you may remember back to the beginning of that, the first iteration of that, way back in the 60s, started in 1964, where at one o'clock on a Sunday afternoon, world championship wrestling happened. People, who remembers that? Where I had to, every, I was religiously watched that program. Go into the lounge, turn whatever mum was watching over, change the channel with the pliers because the knob had come off the little TV like that. And, and to watch World Championship Wrestling where there are characters like uh, the Junkyard Dog, Mario Milano, the Italian Stallion, and Spiros and the Golden Greek. And in the 60s, there was huge Italian and Greek migration. Each one of those had their champion. Mark Lewin from New York. They had a tag team called Skull Murphy and Brute Bernard. Skull Murphy's claim to fame was his, his skull was two to three times thicker than anyone else on the planet. Of course, you believe that. The thing about all these, and, and there, was a, there was a commentator called Jack Little. Jack Little sounded like he'd swallowed broken glass. It was real gravelly and, and stuff. And they had a, a referee. The main referee was a guy called Wallaby Bob McMasters from Mudgeribar, Queensland. Called Wallaby Bob because he played for the Wallabies, the rugby union side. And in fact, a few, he owned the pub at Bar. if you drive down the freeway and look off to your right, you still see the Wallaby Hotel was Wallaby Bob's Hotel. But every one of the wrestlers through whatever age you look at, every wrestler has a signature move. In those early days, a guy called Killer Kowalski had a move called, anyone remember it? The claw hold. He would get his opponent down and just dig his fingernails into their I was going to say muscles, but there weren't many muscles there, but into the, into the opponent's stomach. Mark Lewin had this hold called the sleeper hole where he would just wrap his arms around his opponent's head and, you know, somehow cut off the blood to the circulation to the brain. And Wallaby Bob would every now and again pick up the arm of the opponent and if the arm dropped without any, you know, opposition, call the end of the bout because the guy was out cold. Everyone had a signature move. And whenever that signature move came on, the, the commentator's pitch and volume would increase and the crowd would go crazy when it was ready for that signature move. I want to talk today about your signature move and my signature move. What is that? Because the signature move will determine, or the signature moves will determine the legacy that you leave. So I want to come to a place today where we understand what our legacy might be and our signature move, but I want to firstly talk about the signature move of Jesus. 
What is the signature move of Jesus? Now, I know Jesus came and it says he came with grace and truth, but when you mix those two together and you look at the history and the Gospels, I think you've got to say that one, if not the major signature move of Jesus, is courage. He has courage, he has resilience, he has guts to make a difference. And it's not just stupid courage, it's courage for his kingdom. When his kingdom, to to make sure his kingdom gets expanded and exploded. It's kingdom courage. I think that's what makes a move, makes a difference for Jesus. I don't think Jesus is all that worried when it's non-kingdom issues. I don't think he's all that upset about that. I don't think Jesus is upset about whether you have a grey carpet or an orange carpet in the auditorium, whether you paint the auditorium green or red. I don't think Jesus is all that upset about that. We might get upset about it. I don't think he's all that upset about it. I don't think it's a big issue for Jesus if you sing Sankey's or Hillsong. If you don't know what Sankey's is, you just need to ask someone afterwards. But I don't think Jesus is too upset if you read the NIV version or the message version or the KSJB version or whatever else it is, the RSVP version. I'm not sure. I'm not sure Jesus is all, all that upset about which one of those versions you read. But I'll tell you what he is upset about. When the marginalised get left on the margins, when the poor don't get to eat, when the gospel is not spread and delivered in the, in the, in the world, when broken people are left broken, when those sort of things happen, Jesus, his courage rises to the surface. And we're going to explore that, some of that today. The signature move of Jesus and the, the legacy that he lives, leaves and the legacy that you and I can leave as well. And if we can understand something of the courage of Jesus and allow God's spirit to infuse that into our lives, it will make a difference on who we are and the legacy we leave. We need to do that understanding a little bit of the history and the geography of the time that Jesus lived because that'll help us understand just how courageous he was. So we're going to do a little bit of that and look at a little bit of that, that legacy and a little bit of that history. There's a first century historian called Josephus. He's not a believer, but he, he spells out some of the things that happened around Jesus and you get to understand why the Gospels were written the way they were. But let's start with the leader of the time, Herod the Great, who wasn't great. Herod the Great was Herod the Brute. He was the leader of Israel and Palestine um, at the time of Jesus until about Jesus was just a, a young toddler. And he was a brute. He, was, he had 10 wives, 43 children. One of his favourite wives for a while was a lady called Marion. She was 17 years of age when he married her. She had five children with him and there came a period of time later on where he thought she was grooming his kids to take over from him in a coup. So Herod being the brute that he was had his wife Marion executed, her mother executed as well. A little bit later on he, he felt two more of his sons were again plotting a coup to overtake his kingdom. 
So he had them executed as well. Five days before he died, Herod had his eldest son executed. It caused Caesar in Rome, who put Herod in place, it caused Caesar to say, better to be Herod's pig than his son. As he was dying, he had some key citizens in Jerusalem arrested with the orders that when the day he died, they were to be executed because he wanted to make sure there was mourning in Jerusalem when he died, on the day he died, and he knew there wouldn't be mourning for him. So he got other people killed at the same time just so they would be mourning. He was a brute. The legacy he left, we'll see, is horrific. The signature moves he had were pathetic and brutal and violent and awful. And when he died, three of his sons went up to Rome to see if they could be given, if not all of Herod's kingdom, then some of his kingdom. So those three sons went up. Their names were Archelaus, Herod Antipas, and Philip the Tetrarch, three brothers, who went up to Caesar to see if they could get Herod's legacy in land. They were all hoping to get the lot. They did, and they got some, some of it each. And there's a map up there. You'll see where they got each one. And, and Herod Antipas, sorry, Archelaus got the bit down the south near Jerusalem. Um, Herod Antipas got the bit in the middle near the Sea of Galilee. And uh, Philip the Tetrarch got the bit further up near Caesarea Philippi, which is named after him. And so they got a, about a third of the place each where they could be leader. And when you see, G, you see Jesus' courage when he addresses those people, when he faces those people. Let's look at Archelaus, who's down in Jerusalem, down in the southern part of the kingdom. You see, he went to Rome to ask for the kingdom for himself, that he might be the leader. And there were some citizens there, 50 citizens actually, who were so concerned about his leadership and what he'd already taken on board from his dad, that they went up at the same time to appeal to Caesar not to give him the leadership. They had seen Archelaus, even before he became the official leader, execute 3,000 people. So they went up and said, don't give him the leadership. Don't do that. Deaf ears to Caesar, he gave Archelaus the leadership of that area. And we read this, Luke chapter 19. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. And he said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. That wasn't just something that Jesus pulled out of the air. This is happening. I've lost my place now. That's good. And then to return. He called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 miners. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subject hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he went for the servants to whom he'd given the money in order to find out what they'd gave with this. So in the context of this bigger story, there's this other story where he gives ten, three, three people, 10 miners, the miners about three months' salary, to see what they would do with it. And they come back and some had made some money and some didn't do anything. And as they reported back. He said, well, I'll give you in charge of so many cities. You can have so many cities. You can't have any cities. 
Let me read this. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given, but as for the one who's nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. And after Jesus said this, he went up on a, on a head going up to Jerusalem. See, anybody who heard Jesus speak that day had no, no mistake about what he was talking about. He, Jesus didn't pluck some story out of the air. His parables are not generally some story in a vacuum. He's taken the front page of the Jerusalem Times where Archelaus has gone up, asked for leadership. A group have gone up, asked him not to get it, came back, had them executed. And then it says, a little bit at the end, as you may miss, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In other words, he was in the countryside, but he went up to Jerusalem where the, where the heat was. He didn't back off. If I'd have been Jesus, I'd have stayed far away from Jerusalem, having said that. But he went up to Jerusalem where the heat was and took it on face to face. No one's in doubt what he said. Let me look at the second son, Herod Antipas, who's in that middle area around the Sea of Galilee where we see more and more of this clash of cultures, the culture of the kingdom of heaven and the culture of other kingdoms around about. You read this at the beginning of Luke chapter 3, and there's a lot to do with this second king or the second leader and John the Baptist and Jesus and how they all interrelate together. Luke 3, the beginning says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah in the desert. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You see, you've got to ask the question, why is there so much detail there just in the introduction of that chapter? There's high priests, there's tetrarchs, there's governors. And then it says, but the word of God came to John, a weird locust and honey-eating dude wearing weird clothes living in the wilderness. And here is the beginning of a topsy-turvy kingdom where the word of God and the truth of God doesn't come through the hierarchy. You'd think it'd come through priests and kings and governors but Jesus says it comes through, Luke says, comes through a weird bloke. That's really good news for us because God can use weird people like you and me. And the kingdom values get turned upside down. They don't come through hierarchy. They come through ordinary, everyday, common or garden people who are tuned into the kingdom of God and have got the courage of Jesus to make a difference. That's what that passage is all about. That's what it means. There's a law of aversion. But John the Baptist had conflict with Herod on a moral issue, which we'll look at in a moment, and he got thrown into jail and eventually beheaded. And I don't know about you, but when you're in jail, I would imagine, and if there's anybody here who's been in jail, you'll be able to tell me, you can get fairly down and depressed and uncertain about what's going on. We read this in, in Luke chapter 3, further on, with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. 
But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he'd done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. And John's in prison, and now he's wondering, I'm here, I'm not, the future's not looking good. This Jesus who's working around the place, I know who he says he is, I know who he's set up to be, and I know that my mum and his mum were good mates. But is he really the Messiah? Can he really do what he says he does? There's a little bit of uncertainty or doubt that comes to John as he's lingering in a prison cell. And he sends his, some friends out to ask Jesus, who he intellectually probably knew the answer of, but just to ask Jesus, are you the one who's the Messiah or should we wait for someone else because I'm languishing here in a prison? And they come and ask Jesus, says this in Matthew 11, after Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. And when John heard in prison that Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? And Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. Blinds receive sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. You see, they're asking Jesus, are you really the one? And the thing you've got to understand here is Jesus doesn't answer with some apologetic answer. He doesn't say, well, go back and tell him that Isaiah says this or Deuteronomy says this or whatever. He says, go back and tell him that the blind see and the lame walk and the dead are raised and good news is preached to the poor. Go back and tell him what you see. Go back and tell him what Jesus is doing, what Jesus can do. Go back and testify what you're seeing around about the place. And that'll bring hope and encouragement to you in prison when it seems hopeless. But you need to understand some of the history of this because John the Baptist stood up with courage against Herod Antipas and then Jesus really stands up against him too. Story is this that Herod Antipas, the leader of this middle section, was married uh, with a political marriage to a lady who was the daughter of the most dangerous foe Herod could have. The king of Nabatea ran a region or was in charge of a region in what's now Jordan. The key city of that region was a place called Petra. We know it today, it's still there. It's a historic site. And the king of Nabatea had a, an army which was an extraordinary army, well-oiled, well-versed, well-trained, battle-hardened. And so if you're going to make a, a political marriage, it's good to, good to marry the daughter of the person who could be your biggest enemy, if you're letting. So it was a political marriage. And then that was okay for a while, but then a problem happens because Herod falls in love or lust or something with his brother's wife. Philip, the one up top, fell in, he fell in love with Herodias, his brother's wife. Now the dilemma you come is when, when that happens, you have to get rid of your first wife. You have to divorce your first wife. And of course that makes dad not very happy. And the history books tell us that a, a battle happened where this hardened army of 
Nabataean soldiers, and I think there's a photo of an artist's impression of the Nabataean army, very well trained, very battle hardened. 20,000 Nabataeans came to fight against 10,000, probably dishevelled by comparison, army of that part of Israel. And of course, the Israeli army under Herod Antipas was absolutely trashed, which does nothing for your profile as a leader. Does nothing for that. You are, you are you know, regarded as very poorly if you get beaten in battle. And Herod Antipas and his troops got beaten in battle, really thumped badly. And then Jesus tells a story, tells a couple of stories actually. He, he tells one story and then he couches that to put a wider story. And he, in Luke chapter 14, he says this, suppose one of you wants to build a tower, will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he's enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. So he says, who would start building a house or a tower and not think beforehand what he needed in terms of materials and cash and whatever it might be? So he said that and then he leads straight into another story. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the others are still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Now, the people who hear that are in absolutely no doubt what Jesus is saying. This is not some story plucked out of the air. And everyone who hears that story understands that Jesus is saying, and I paraphrase, what type of pea-brained imbecile as a leader would even consider going to war with 10,000 so-so troops against a battle-hardened 20,000 people? Paraphrase, what a goose your leader is. And he stands and says it in Galilee. Courageous. Scary courageous. What sort of a fool would do that? And nobody who heard him that day was in any doubt about who he was talking about. That's the courage of Jesus. But he doesn't stop there with Herod Antipas. He, he goes on a bit further. And, you know, in those days, and if you're a king or a leader, and one of the important things is to keep your profile in front of people to make sure that people still remembered you. And because there was a lot, not a, not a lot of people could read or write in the country, some of the elite could, but not too many, the way you would do that in the, in the, in the, country, in the countries around Israel, the way you would do that was, and we still do it today, you put the leader's head on a coin so that every time there's a transaction, they, are remem they remember their leader. It's one way to do it. As I said, we still do that today. But the problem in Israel is you couldn't put the king's or leader's head on a coin because one of the Old Testament commandments is you shall have no graven images. In other words, they weren't allowed to put their image on anything. Not allowed to put anything. So what would happen was the leaders in Israel would have a, a logo or a symbol that reminded people of who they were, usually from the area they were. And 
the symbol for Herod Antipas and for the leader of this area because of the region they were in. The symbol was a Galilean reed. They were everywhere around the Sea of Galilee and the symbol was this reed. And so Jesus doesn't stop with Herod Antipas, as I've said. He says this, he reads this, and we read this in Luke chapter 7. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? See, it's not just to pluck out of the air stuff. What did you go out to see? What do, you, what do you want? A king without a backbone? A king who just gets swayed like that? A king who just goes like that, no matter what the circumstances are? You want a reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. It's Herod. That's if you really want that. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it's written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare you, prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet the one who's least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. This is not gentle Jesus, meek and mild. This is Jesus, courageous, in your face. You're going to exercise that sort of legacy for your people. You're going to um, do that sort of stuff. People, if you're going to follow someone, you're going to follow a, someone who flips and flops like that, someone who just, the image matters more than the content or the substance. What about Jesus who came? What about John who came to proclaim the kingdom? See, Jesus is courageous above courage, right in the face of people. He does that. And we could tell you story after story of where the parables came from and what they mean and the actual current currency of them. But I just want to say this. One of the things we need to understand about courage as a legacy is that courage breeds courage. And we see that here. Courage breeds courage. It really does. It makes a difference. Let me read to you a, a short passage of Scripture that you may have read many times and just sort of jumped over because um, it just seems like an introduction to another story. In Luke chapter 8, Luke, who's the doctor and very detailed, says this, After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him. Also, some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases, Mary called Magdalene, for whom, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. I want you to note two astounding things that you could miss if you just read over that. One is this, that Jesus and his disciples were supported by women. Now, in that culture, that was unheard of. You didn't do that. You know, women didn't get jobs. They didn't, you, know, you, just weren't, you just weren't able to do that. But they were. But then the second thing is this one particular woman, Joanna. I've read many times about this and just fl flicked over it. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household. Here's a woman whose husband is kind of the, the house manager of the palace. 
And here is his wife using some of the salary he would get to support Jesus. I don't know whether it's unbeknownst to him or not. It doesn't matter much. The courage of Joanna to use money that has come to her husband for his job as 2IC in the palace to support Jesus who's giving it to her husband. That's incredible courage. Courage breeds courage. That's what encourage means, to encourage, to put courage in to other people. It's an amazing thought. Jesus' legacy was courage. And you know the final story, don't you, that, or the final story in the, most of the Gospels, that when he was in his early, early 30s, one night he was kneeling in a garden, humanly, with all his humanity, wishing that what was about to happen would pass him by, but having the courage to say, not my will, but your will be done, which led him to a cross the next day. And changed the lives of you and me with a legacy that causes people 2,000 years later to arrange their lives around someone who existed humanly 2,000 years ago. That's legacy. It's a legacy of courage. And so a question I want to leave us with today is, what will my legacy be? What will your legacy be? So it's not about numbers, it's about impact for the kingdom. What will the kingdom legacy be? What are the signature moves that we have in our life that are going to last forever, not peter out? They're going to go on. They're going to make a difference. What's our house? What's my house? What's your house going to look like? And your house, I don't mean just your immediate family, but your house, your world. What's what's it going to be left with because of you? It's an incredible question I get challenged with all the time. And I want to just ask the question as we conclude today. what, what what, What do you need God's courage for right now? In a little while, I want to pray for you for, for courage. But what, what is it right now you might need the courage of Jesus for? Is it courage to stand up? Is it courage to make a stand in some area, to not just coalesce and compromise and take the easy way out? Is it, is it courage to stand up in some area or some way? Is it courage to give up? Is there something in your life which is causing you to compromise kingdom values or compromise something going forward that cause you to be less the person that God wants you to be? Is there courage to give up something today? Is there courage to forgive? Have there been people along your life's journey who have maybe offended you or harmed you or done something to you that has caused great grief and great pain and today you might need to take the first step of courage to forgive that person or those persons? Is there courage to confront? Is there an issue or a person you just might need to confront today or sometime this week? I'm not going to avoid that. I'm not going to walk through around eggshells around that anymore. I'm going to take it. I'm going to stand my ground. There's a courage to commit. Is there something you need courage to commit to. Maybe it's a relation. Maybe it's a marriage. Maybe it's 
baptism, whatever it might be, is there a courage to commit that you need today? Is it courage to believe? Do I need to have the courage just trust God for some situation? Just trust God for the future. Trust God for what's coming up. Trust God for a decision I have to make. Maybe it's the courage to believe for the very first time. Maybe you've never come to that place like my wife and I did five days apart many, many years ago of discovering and choosing to follow the, the transforming person of Jesus. Maybe that's it today. Maybe it's courage to believe. What's, what's the courage you need today? So I said, I want to pray for courage for us today. And I, I'm going to ask you to do something in a minute, just where we are, that's uh, just for 30, 40 seconds. If you sense today that you just need the courage of Jesus in some area of your life, I want to get you to stand. And I'm going to pray for you where you are. I'm not, there's no drums or trumpets, no fanfares. I'm just going to pray for you. So let me just say it now. If you... If you Say, Tim, would you pray for me today for courage that I need in one of those areas or maybe others? Would you just stand right now, where you are right now? If you're watching online, could you maybe just, maybe in your lounge room, stand up or kneel or make some sort of indication that it's, that it's a courage you need today for some reason. I'm just going to let it go for another few seconds and I'm not going to let it linger on. But if you'd like prayer for courage today, that that could be something of the legacy you leave. Kingdom courage. You stand where you are. Just a few more seconds. I'm going to pray for you. Father, I want to thank you so much for the people who stood this morning and in so doing, indicating and saying, would you pray for me? Would you pray for courage? I don't know if there's a decision to make or there's a choice to, to make or something to stand for or someone to forgive or a belief to have. Lord, I don't need to know that. They do and you do and that's enough. Whether, Father, it's someone saying today and for the very first time, I believe I'm going to arrange my life now around Jesus because he showed what real courage is. Father, I would pray for an infusion of courage for each person standing today. Each person who stood up and said, yes, would you pray for me, God? I would pray that they would know you and your presence in new and fresh ways that make a difference this very day. And courage can be built today, started today. God, I would pray for that for each person right now. You know their need. You know what needs to happen. And I'll pray that now in Jesus' name for an infusion of your courage. In Jesus' name. Amen. Please grab a seat. Hey, thank you for your courage and just saying, I want to say this to you. I don't know what the reasons are, and you don't, I don't need to know what those reasons are, but maybe for you, it might be helpful if you need courage just to tell that to somebody today. Just waiting for one of those um, scones. <laughs> if, 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 just say to someone today, I, I need, I stood for courage because I need somebody here or someone home. Wow. 
And uh, just feel free to do that. If you've come and for you it was pray for courage for me to believe for the very first time, you do need to talk to someone today. You need to say, can, Tim will tell you how to do that, but can you, can you help me in that journey along the way? You might want some more prayer this morning. You can do that. But I'd encourage you, and I was standing with you, I tell you, so we would ask God to make a legacy with us for His kingdom that really matters. Bless you. Let's stand together. We're going to sing this final song together.
as uh, Tim mentioned, if you have made a decision to put your trust in Jesus this morning, first of all, I want to say congratulations. It's the best decision that you have ever made. But I want to encourage you, we'd love to chat with you at the welcome desk on your way out. Somebody would love to give you some resources to help you on that journey. And uh, they would love to place those into your hands. So please visit the welcome desk on the way out. If you'd like some additional prayer this morning, feel free to come down the front at the end of the service. Our prayer team will be here. Also, Gateway Online, you can push the live prayer button if you'd like some prayer. And of course, feel free to go out and enjoy some scones, uh, some jam and cream and get a photo with the family for Grandparents Day. It's been fantastic joining with us this morning. Can we just encourage Tim and give him a round of applause and thank him for sharing this morning. Thanks, Tim. So good to, uh, to be able to celebrate Grandparents Day together. Well, thank you so much for coming. May God bless you. Look forward to seeing you back next week. We're starting a new series as we go through the book of Ruth. Until then, have a great week. God bless you and have a good one. We hope you've been blessed by this message. If we can pray for you or you would like to take a further step in your relationship with Jesus, we would love to get connected with you. Please head to gatewaybaptist.com.au and click on Get Connected to let us know.